Was that the wettest Labor Day on record in Cleveland? Who knows, but we're going to talk about it. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski and Laura Johnston. Jane Cahoon is taking a week off. So let's get to it. What happened to Northeast Ohio being officially classified as abnormally dry in the national drought scale? First, we have plague, now biblical floods. Laura Johnston, what happened? I'm just waiting for the locusts to, to come down on us. But um, yeah, Cleveland in August went 16 out of 18 <laughs> days with no rain being recorded at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. And then we started September a fraction of an inch below normal for the month. But we are way over over now. So some cities got more than four inches. Some got five inches of rain on Monday from this massive storm that started a little before seven in the morning, before it was even light out and didn't stop until the afternoon. I mean, roads turned into rivers, parking lots and basements flooded, cars got stuck um, when the, the, the water just rose up. Um, I looked this up and typically in September, Cleveland receives about 3.8 inches for the entire month. So I hope every other week in this fall has to be beautiful and sunny and like 75 degrees. <laughs> well, Rich Hexner did a story about 10 years ago that said, what is the most ideal weather days in Ohio? And it's like the second and third weekend of September. So you might be onto something there. I, I, I just have never seen things like we saw yesterday where North Park Boulevard basically turns into a raging river. Uh, you know, we've, we had the thousand year storm back in whatever it was, 05, 06, where a lot of rain fell in 24 hours, but this really fell in about eight hours. I mean, you're almost in an inch an hour for, for a significant amount of time. And I, I just, I wish I, I could understand it. Chris Ranowski, you were trying to explain this to us before the uh, podcast began. And, yeah. and you have, you have some thoughts about how climate change might impact this. Do share. <laughs> through, through the magic of Googling, I found out that, <laughs> um, that part of the reason that, I mean, we talk about climate change all the time, right? And, you know, and weirdly still people don't think it's real, but there's this thing that is happening as the earth warms more and more uh, water from our natural water sources get sucked up into the atmosphere and then it just has nowhere to go. So it all just kind of comes down at once. And, and that's, I think, kind of the, the, the inexplicable storms that we have every once in a while now that just seem to come out of nowhere and are overwhelming our sewer systems and our storm sewer systems. That's part of what it is. I think there's, there's a combination of that. There's a combination of, you know, overdevelopment of antiquated storm sewer systems. It's, you know, it's a lot of things. And, and so, you know, we have to take care of our infrastructure or, you know, all of these different things that sort of just come together to create these things like we've never seen. You're right. Well, yesterday, you, I mean, yesterday, I mean, it was wild. I, I've never seen anything quite like it. Well, and, here. you know, there's some basic physics that the warmer air can absorb more moisture. And so when it comes down, it comes down hard. I just don't remember uh, when I was growing up, or I don't think most people remember that every heavy rainstorm brought with it flood warnings. I mean, we see flood warnings from the Nat National Weather Service pretty regularly with a thunderstorm. Now, no system is going to absorb the kind of water that came down yesterday. I mean, that's just no no way there's an infrastructure to take five inches of rain in seven or eight hours. But But I am struck by how often we're talking about floods now where, you know, that used to be a fairly big occurrence. Is 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 there more in the forecast? Do we or is it, are we going to dry out 
I think we're going to dry out. Uh, there was still some lingering chances this morning. It's supposed to be pretty warm today before it cools off later this week. But, um, yeah, I don't see any rain in the forecast till Sunday. But, I, you know, we got we got six more days <laughs> before we get to that point. <laughs> okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What's the latest in the quest to solve the killing of Cleveland police detective James Skernovitz and our funeral arrangements set? Chris Ranowski, there have been a bunch of arrests. I don't think there are any charges yet. And it seems that the Cleveland police are still looking for more information on this. What's the status? Well, as of this weekend, they arrested two more people uh, in connection with this, bringing the total number to five. So they had already arrested two juveniles, an adult and an adult on Friday. And they picked up two more people over the weekend that are expected to be charged. Um, remember, this is the a Cleveland police detective was shot along with an informant. And um, really what where we're at right now is we don't really know who police believe had actually carried out the shooting. So you have a collection of people who have been arrested and as of this morning, you know, they've given really no indication of who did the shooting and, you know, what, if any, motivation there is. Sarnovitz so, was a recent addition to the federal task force called, what is it, Legend? Operation, Operation Legend. Legend. Yeah. And, and it was a recent, it, by all accounts, everybody's talking about what a... Uh, what a uh, model role model police officer he was. I mean, there's, a, you know, the, the testimonials are coming in all over the place. I read one from a guy on Facebook who said that he was the guy that lost children at the progressive field always went to, and he'd reunite them with the parents, uh, you know, just a, just an honorable guy, but had joined that task force. I mean, he's in, he's in his last years. He was probably getting close to retirement. Um, but soon after doing so, he ends up, getting getting killed in his car and and right and i have to say i mean there's still so much about this story that we just don't know yet and and will probably unfold i mean we adam freeze who has been following the story since the beginning is is he he expects there will be some charges that come down today and we'll have some identities of people and and maybe we'll get some of the places or the people who are you know, involved in this, they'll, their places in this whole incident will become a little more clear um, today and maybe in the coming days. So generally when police officers are killed in the line of duty like this, they're, they're viewed as heroes and their, and the funerals that result are draw police officers from all over the country, Canada. This is COVID. This is the era of the pandemic. What do we expect to happen? And, and the funeral is Friday. Yeah, so the funeral is set for 10 o'clock Friday at the Cathedral of St. John of the Evangelist on Superior Avenue in downtown Cleveland, and the visitation will be from 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. Thursday at Rapepi and Sons Funeral Home on Bagley Road in Middleburg Heights. Um, so, But we don't know if there's going to be uh, this massive turnout like we've had in years past. We had a, an officer die back in 2017 when he was hit by a car. Uh, out on the highway and, and there was a very, very big turnout. So I, you know, right now we haven't really seen much guidance from the city as far as how they're going to plan to, to do 
something like they do in past incidents like this that that uh, you know will will yeah, be I safe. Yeah, I just wanted to add in because I I do have been going to church and right now they the capacity is like every third pew you can put like two or three people in six feet apart. So it'll be really interesting. That's a big church, uh, obviously downtown, but you won't be able to pack it full. But maybe the maybe what'll happen is the police officers will come and and do the line mm-hmm. of police cars. I can't imagine that they're going to not oh, come. Yeah. This is this is too big a deal. So th- I, my bet is some system will be put in place to keep them safe so they don't get COVID while still paying respects to Officer Skarnovitz. It'll be a uh, somber day in Northeast Ohio. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Does Northeast Ohio continue to show good manners during the coronavirus by adhering to social distance standards? But what is going on in Ohio's small counties? Laura Johnson, this is heartening good news coming from COVID. The Northeast Ohioans still know how to have We do. Our person-to-person interactions were up just 0.3% in Cuyahoga County during August. Uh, This is obviously while the mask orders were in place. The research is coming from Top Data, which is an independent company that uses cell phone location data to estimate interactions. And they did this from August 2nd through August 28th, and they're comparing it to the month before, so July. Much of Northeast Ohio was trending like Cuyahoga County. There was, you know nearly about 1% in Lake Lorraine, Medina, and Summit counties. But elsewhere in Ohio, interactions were up way more elsewhere in the country as well, up to, I think, 78.4% in Paulding County in Ohio. Well, and Mike DeWine keeps telling us that the the rural counties are where people are, are being fairly cavalier and the virus is spreading the fastest. It's interesting how much data... And it's not personalized. They can't see your name, but how much data they you can get from those cell phone patterns to see how people are adhering to the standards. And it, and, and I was fascinated to see because everybody thought in the summer we'd all let our guard down. But at least in the seven counties of Northeast Ohio, people people behave. They they decided to not spread. And the it, what's interesting is you don't know where these interactions took place, right? Or if they were in large crowds or it's a one-on-one, at least I, I don't think there's a way to tell. What's going to be interesting as as the weather gets colder, are people going to start going into each other's houses? Because they at least my the people I know, that has not happened yet. And are they just going to say, okay, we're shutting up shop and we're done? Or are we going to figure, you know, are they going to let their guard down a little bit? Well, it might all come down to whether there's a rapid test that is readily available. You know, if you thought I want to get together with my family at Christmas and you could all do a nasal swab and immediately see if you're you're covid free, you could get together and have a nice dinner. But without that, uh, I think you're going to have a lot of either people taking risks or people staying home and getting depressed. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Normally, we might leave a politician's divorce unmentioned on this podcast, but might the recent divorce of former Ohio Treasurer Joss Mandel offer insight into his abrupt dropping out of the U.S. Senate race two years ago, leaving his fellow Republicans to scramble for a replacement candidate to challenge incumbent Democrat Sherrod Brown? Chris Ranowski, Jane Kinnun and I had had a big debate last week about whether to do the Josh Mandel story, but because of how he left that race two years ago without really explaining or ever giving an interview since to to go into details, and because of the way he went about getting the divorce, we decided it had news value. 
take us through what what's going on here. Well, clearly you won that debate. <laughs> I... <laughs> How do you know that I was the one on that side of the debate? <laughs> when you talk about we, uh, that no, I'm kidding. Um, so I, it, to just some background. You gave someone you, in your sort of run up to this, but uh, when he left the race. Mandel said his wife had a health issue that would require his time, attention, and presence. And the move really did catch a, a lot of Ohio Republicans off guard. And it resulted in them, you know, replacing him, uh, his, him with Jim Renacci, um, on the ticket. And he eventually lost to, to Sherrod Brown. Uh, Mandel and his wife, is it Ilana Mandel? They filed for divorce in Ashland County in April where neither of them live and a judge has allowed their records to be filed under seal uh, with the divorce being finalized in June. And they put out a statement that said basically that over time they grew apart and um, they decided that parting amicably was the best thing for their family to move forward. And um, they said they're still close friends and they're jointly focused on raising their children and they're there for each other as a team. So, you know, over the past decade or so, he he had cultivated an image of a very staunch conservative. Often, you know, his family was often a part of his campaign ads and his literature. And in, I mean, in as Seth pointed out in his story, a, a, a photo of the whole family st- is still on his campaign or on his website. So, you know, it's one of those things we don't know if if you know, this is directly related to if, if they were having marital problems when he decided to drop out or if, you know, this is just something that happened over time. It happens. Look, it happens to half of Americans. But you, know, but, but, but you got to put it in the perspective. I mean, this right. guy was a juggernaut. He was a, he could raise money like very few people. Mm-hmm. You know, he had gone from South Euclid councilman and just rocketed up the ladder. State treasurer ran against Sherrod Brown in 2012 ran a campaign in which, you know, everything he said pretty much was dishonest and people didn't react well to that and Sherrod beat him pretty handily. But he was looked upon as a real challenger to Brown after Trump won Ohio so handily in 2016 and and was full speed ahead. I mean, he was going, he had the war chest, he had the money, uh, was charging down the road and then overnight with very little in the way of explanation, except for this vague health issue with his wife disappears. And then he ran out his term as treasurer, but he, he was almost never available for an interview, never really discussed what, what he did to the Republican party by dropping out. So this does, I think offer some possible insight into the, into the reasons that maybe the family problems were were so large. But there there are definitely still mysteries though, right? He has like millions of dollars still in a campaign chest. So who knows what the future holds for Josh Mandel? I mean, he's, he's pretty young. Like I would say early forties. So he has a long career left ahead of him. You know, it, I mean, it's interesting to sort of ponder as to what kind of lawmaker he would have been in this period of Trumpism. And, you know, would he have been the, the sort of steady hand Mike DeWine kind, or would he have been the sort of young, brash Matt Gates or Jim Jordan type? And- oh, he was he was Jim <laughs> Jordan all the way. Right. Yeah, and look, it's, and look, it's, yeah, look, right. And it's, but it's, as, but I mean, you know, I mean, some become, people who seemed extreme at the time, you know, are soft in comparison to how, you know, sort of seemingly radical 
things have gotten in that, you know, on that oh, side Chris. of the aisle. <laughs> he had, he had, his path, his trajectory was to become increasingly strident. Look, when he ran in 2012, I was very proud of the work that the, the newsroom did when we, I was at the Plain Dealer at the time, because just about every campaign ad he put out was a lie. I mean, yeah. and we just kept pointing out all of his mistruths. He tried to turn Sherrod Brown's strength with labor. He tried to swift boat him on it, trying to say that, you know, Sherrod Brown was a friend of China and, you know, was not a friend. It was ridiculous. I mean, Sherrod Brown, his whole heart and soul, he has been a labor guy. He's never swayed. I mean, the one thing you could say about Sherrod Brown is the guy is true to everything he's ever said. And and Josh was trying to take it away. I mean, I, I think I think if he were in Washington as a senator, he would have given Jim Jordan a run. For if his if money. I recall, he he made some sort of trip down to the border. Now that I'm thinking back to this, there was some video on YouTube of him like, like trying to claim that the border was open. And it was all very stunty and, yeah. you know, very sort of project veritas in its in its nature so you're right <laughs> and, and laura johnston you're you're right that he could have a long career ahead of him it's just when you've pegged your entire existence to your staunch family values overcoming this I could mean, be difficult. <laughs> when you look at the guy in the white house i mean there's <laughs> all right okay <laughs> all right moving on it's this week in the cle do we finally know how people will learn when the coronavirus shows up in schools? Laura Johnston, we've gone on and on about the secrecy of the Cuyahoga Board of Health and how it won't serve the people by giving them the information they want, leading to all sorts of social traffic where people are complaining about the health board and its refusal to serve the public. Governor Mike DeWine finally has the answer. What yeah, so parents are going to find out within 24 hours of a case directly from their children's school district. That, I believe, starts today. And then the public, if they don't know already, will get a list of schools with cases every Thursday from the state. That's going to start next week. The schools are required to send this information to the state every Tuesday. So maybe then we'll find out what's going on in Cuyahoga County because the Board of Health is still not telling us. Um, they said infections and students and staff in the county, we're up to 51 as of Friday, but they still were publicly refused to identify those schools. Well, the baffling yeah. thing in their oh. latest report is the number of schools right. went down. How does that happen? The number, the, the number total went up, but now they're saying, yeah, and they're not explaining that discrepancy, just like yeah. they've explained nothing. I know, but that, I mean, that's not mathematically no. possible, right? If you were eight the week before, you can't go down to six. So it's like, and you're right, they won't explain it, they won't answer any questions. This is the least publicly informative board we've seen. What surprises me is every week when they have their briefing and don't tell us what we need to know, Armin Budish is sitting right next to him. I mean, I'm surprised that he's he's kind of wrapping himself in the taint of the secrecy of this board because because people are unhappy about it. And I do think when COVID's over, we're going to have a real conversation about how public health boards should operate in the future. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Cleveland's response to criticism received over how it is dealing with the Community Police Commission, which was set up as part of the federal consent decree designed to improve the police department's relationship with the people it serves? Chris Ranowski, first, we had the criticism, and then with kind of a big delay, we have the response. So take <laughs> it through. Right. So at, every once in a while, the uh, the 
the overseer of the consent decree that the police department um, uh, reached with the the Department of Justice, uh, they have to file this report with the court that is basically just a progress report on how reform is going. And one of the, the biggest criticisms that was in the most latest report, which came out a few weeks ago, and John Coniglia wrote about, was that they really aren't listening to the community police commission, which is, you know, a partially citizens board of people who are there to sort of give feedback to police on how they're doing in the community and how they can sort of better serve the community. And that report was, you know, this was the first one that was really, really kind of unkind and how, and how it, how it criticized the, the city's response to it. And, as a result, the city took a couple of weeks and filed its response and, and basically said that the negative characterization of of its relationship with the board um, sort of contradicts what they call, quote, well-documented and positive engagement and participation with the Cleveland community during the period of the consent decree. And Gregory White, who is a former state and federal prosecutor and magistrate judge, he is the consent decree coordinator for the city of Cleveland. And he acknowledged that there had been quote bumps in the road uh, recently with the commission, but stressed that the city and the department are working to create what they call an honest dialogue that will help the commission to do its work and help the city. You know, Chris, probably nobody is closer to this than, than you are in many ways. Cause you oversee crime coverage. You mm-hmm. oversee a lot. What, what, what is your take? Do you think, do you think that the criticism was valid or do you think that the city's explanation holds more weight? I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. You know, it's interesting because we've had, we did get a new monitor. Like the, the person who is overseeing the, the actual monitoring of this is, is, is not the same guy that (laughs) was there when it started. And, and, and the, the new guy has been, uh, you know, has been a lot more critical. I mean, we got that really, really blistering and very damning account of, of McGrath, former public safety director, Mike McGrath, who is, you know, former and not an office anymore. And, you know, on the heels of that, we get this report. And, and so, you know, you're starting to see after a couple of years of, you know, yeah, everything's going good. Everything's going great. Everything is moving in the right direction. You know, you're starting to see a lot a lot more heavy criticism from the monitor of the police department. And that's not to say that there wasn't criticism before there was a lot of, of examination over, you know, how police were handling citizen complaints and, and, and how internal investigations were going. There were, there was a lot of focus on that, but, but but, but let me interrupt you. I mean, Mm -hmm. I might've bought the city explanation before the May 30th riot, but the, the community police commission went out of its way, right, to ask for a federal investigation of that because it's frustrated by the lack of information. Right. right? And it's but again, it's it's we've talked about this before. It, it's that's partially a city issue. I mean, that's the you know, there were officers who were there that probably weren't trained in the way Cleveland police officers were. And again, I'm not offering a spirited defense of, of policing in the city of Cleveland. I'm sure it's still you know, it has its problems. You know, we, we've, we've certainly seen a, a decrease in police involved shootings. Um, no, but but, but, but my of, point, but, but my point you, is, if the relationship between the police commission and the city were good, the police commission likely would not go to the federal investigators to ask for help. They would feel like 
they can get the information from the city. But for them to ask for an independent federal investigation of how that riot went down is a bad sign about its relationship with the city, right? Well, but also I, I think, you know, you don't you don't want to get into the business of police departments investigating themselves. I think that's, you know, a part of the part of the reason that we're in this boat is is that you know, for decades, the, the internal investigations of police, uh, of police misconduct basically just patted everybody on the head and said, go back to doing your job. And so, you know, I think there, there's limits to what I think the monitor can do. And I think that, you know, ask, asking federal investigators to intervene and, and examine this. I mean, we're, we've been promised a report at some point on, this the the May 30th response and and how all of the police responded from you know this bo- from the consent decree from the monitor so at some point we're going to get some sort of narrative reckoning from somebody in some position of authority over this because the city has kind of been lacking in any in all accountability the council really hasn't provided any oversight and accountability no hearings nothing i mean you know, so, I mean, it really kind of does fall on the monitor to decide like, okay, you know, does this fall within this notion of reform that we have been working on for, what is it, four or five years now? And, and, and so, you know, at some point we will get something, but the wheels on this move incredibly slow and, and, and it's unfortunate. You're listening to this week in the CLE. With students in high school bands blowing with all their might into their instruments, what can be done to stop them from spreading the coronavirus? Lord Johnson, this is a fascinating story. And I wondered, are we going to end up with a ranking of of instruments like, you know, the tuba, because it has so many bends and folds, very little virus gets through. But the clarinet, maybe it's it's a dangerous instrument. So what's the story here on how to stop? people playing band instruments from infecting really the trombone is what you've got to worry about you got to give you an extra three feet of space for the trombone i'm not kidding this is in the recommendation because of how long that goes out it's this very interesting concept and we started researching this story after members of the north royalton band were quarantined when a student tested positive for covid and we so we've talked so much about contact sports we've talked a little bit about singing but This is a big unknown about these musical instruments. And Alexis Oatman, our reporter, contacted a bunch of doctors who kind of said, we don't really know. So (laughs) there is a study, just like everything else, there's an association. So research at the um, University of Colorado Boulder studied the aerosols created by these instruments. And it showed that the concentrations were higher for instruments that had straight shapes from the mouthpiece to the bell, like the trumpet and the clarinet. Um, wearing masks, covering the instrument's bells with nylon all reduced the particle concentration. So they, they came up with a bunch of recommendations and they think they should have musician masks that are, you know, fitted to your face with a slit for your mouthpiece. They think you should put covers over the bells and be at least six feet apart while you're performing. So how does that work? Because when, when somebody's playing a trumpet or a clarinet or, or a trombone, they're not blowing out of the sides of their mouths. What's the purpose of a mask? They, they're they're focusing, they're, they're spewing well, right into the They'd be protecting themselves oh. if you're wearing a mask. Then you're not getting the aerosols from the person oh, next I to see. you. I mean, obviously, outside is better for practice and performances. Um, the indoors, they've said they've 
all this stuff you should do about HVAC systems. And, you know, a lot of times musicians practice by themselves in a confined area and they think that you should have so much time between filling those rooms with other people. This is just something I think we're going to see a lot more research come out about as we continue on in this pandemic, because, you know, high school band season is one thing, but there's a whole lot of other music that you could talk about being played. Right. The whole Cleveland Orchestra, for instance. So we'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, that's going to do it. We uh, we don't really have time for the rest of the stories we wanted to talk about today. Maybe we'll hold them for for another day. Is there a uh, governor's briefing today? Because it that's is what he Tuesday. said on Thursday. He said he'd see us all Tuesday. So It feels like Monday, but it's Tuesday. So we'll have to see... 